Good morning, church. Our scripture reading will be coming from Acts chapter 21, verse 27, to Acts chapter 22, verse 1. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is a man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, an Ephesian in the city, with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused. The people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He then asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted in one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, away with him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ronisha. And you can keep your Bibles or your electronic versions of it open. We have a lot of scripture to get through today. Sometimes when people are really faithful to their calling and really faithful to the gospel, things don't turn out all that great. Uh, A lot of things, we've seen people be faithful to the gospel throughout the book of Acts. We're in now week 27 or something of our series looking through the book of Acts. People have been obedient to Jesus and preached the gospel in all kinds of ways, and a lot of awesome things have happened. Those passages were really fun to preach. Today, this is kind of a downer. Paul is faithful to continue preaching the gospel. He's faithful to continue following Jesus. But things uh, generally don't turn out so great for him. We met Paul back in Jerusalem, back in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, when he was named Saul. And he was a Jewish leader persecuting the new Christian movement. He was a violent person trying to take down the church and take take down followers of Jesus. Then had a dramatic conversion experience where God told him that he was going to be the one to take the good news of Jesus to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people in the world. And we've seen Paul do that over the last several weeks. We've seen his missionary exploits We've seen incredible acts of power of God on his behalf. We've seen him proclaim the gospel and see people come to life. We've seen incredible things. But today, we're going to see Paul come home. He's traveled all over the known world, all over the Mediterranean world, following after God, seeing God at work. And today, he goes back to Jerusalem, back to his people, the greatest cross-cultural missionary of all time, returns to his own people. 
All the while, though, while he's been seeing God do incredible things in different cities all throughout the Mediterranean, there's been another theme throughout the book of Acts, and that's everywhere Paul's gone, there's also been a degree of opposition and hostility towards him and towards the gospel that he brings. It's been building in each city. Every city he goes to, he goes to the Jewish synagogue first, and there are people who don't like the message he's preaching, and they they persecute him. And then the culture itself, in whatever Gentile city it is, turns against him in one way or another. He's been beaten several times. He's been in prison several times. He's been captured several times, interrogated. But every time, he he just kind of seems to get away. God just miraculously rescues him, delivers him from trouble, and whatever attempts there are to kind of stop Paul in the message uh, that he's preaching, they're very short-lived, and he's able to kind of move on. But today, he does, he's not really able to move on anymore. The opposition that's been building and mounting and following him everywhere he goes seems to finally get the best of Paul today. They seem to finally get him. And really, the book of Acts from this point on slows down dramatically. And there is no quick deliverance. And from here on out, Paul will never actually again be a free man. He'll spend the rest of his life under some kind of custody. And he'll never be completely free to travel about at will. So we have a ton to cover today. We'll see, we'll see how we do. We're going to go from chapter 21 through the middle of chapter 23. And I've uh, divided it up into three parts that you can see on your, your little handout in the program. So in the first part of chapter 21, we have just the trip to Jerusalem, the the travel, the getting there, the going home. We have the trip to Jerusalem with some more warnings. And then from uh, chapter 21, verses 17 to 26, we have Paul meets with the Jerusalem Christians with some awkwardness. And then the rest of the passage, the bulk of the passage, the best way to summarize it was accusations, violence, and chaos with a twist, which we'll get to. So our first part here in verse chapter 21, 1 to 16, we just have kind of the trip, Paul going to Jerusalem. Not going to spend too much time on this, and we won't read through it. Uh, Basically, it's kind of a travel log, an itinerary, the places they stop along the way and some of the people that they meet. Uh, But along the way, there are also a couple more warnings that danger lies ahead, that there's trouble waiting for Paul when he gets to Jerusalem. Pastor Tom looked at some of these last week. People had warned Paul. uh, The Holy Spirit was kind of revealing that, well, when you get to Jerusalem, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be pain. And there's more of those warnings here in chapter 21. A couple of warnings. Uh, The Holy Spirit has made it clear that uh, trouble awaits. And so the people with Paul try to stop him from going. They, They try to urge him not to go on to Jerusalem. But as Pastor Tom made clear last week, the Spirit was also telling Paul to go. His friends, his companions, they hear the Spirit saying, there's going to be trouble, and they naturally assume, oh, well, then you shouldn't go. They'd make good 21st century people, I think. You know, we like to think, well, if it feels good, do it. And they're kind of thinking, well, Paul, if it's not going to feel good, don't do it. He's telling you there's going to be trouble, don't go. But Paul is compelled by the Holy Spirit to go. Compelled by the Holy Spirit to go. In, uh, in verse 11, there's a, a prophet who takes Paul's belt, ties his own hands and feet with it, and says, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. 
But Paul answered, and this is where we see where his heart really is. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Everyone else around him is concerned first and foremost for Paul's safety and comfort. But Paul is concerned less for his own safety and comfort, and first of all, most of all, for Jesus himself. He's concerned primarily for the gospel and that he does his part to preach the gospel, no matter what happens to him. What happens to him is secondary, but that Jesus be preached is primary. I want to take you uh, away from this passage for just a little bit uh, to the book of Romans. Uh, It's an interesting book. We think of it as a a theology kind of book, but there's a lot in it that tells us what's going on for Paul at this time. So the book of Romans was written somewhere during this time as Paul's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. We know that because he says in the book of Romans, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. So we know Romans was written somewhere during this time. So I've got a few quick passages to look at. Um, In Romans 15.25... Paul says, now, however, I think these will be up there. Yeah, I am on my way to Jerusalem in service to the Lord's people there. So we know uh, he's on his way. He's going. And we see a couple things that are going on for Paul as he's going. One is this in Romans 1.15. He says, I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So this is important. Paul's long-term vision His sense of calling from God is to eventually get to Rome. He's preached the gospel all over the Roman Empire, but uh, his long-term vision is to actually get to Rome, get to the heart of the place, the capital, and to preach the gospel there. That's his long-term calling and vision from God. It's on his heart to get to Rome and to preach the gospel there. But first, he's going to go to Jerusalem. In In chapter 10, verse 1 of Romans, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. Even though God is using him in every other culture in the world, Paul still has a deep burden on his heart for his own people. He prays for his own people, the people of Israel, that they may be saved as well. We get, he goes even deeper. Chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, get a sense of where Paul's heart is. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. This just helps us know what's going on for Paul as he goes, as he gets to Jerusalem. This is not just a task for him, but he's got a deep burden, a deep love for these people. These are his people. He's dying for them to know Jesus. It's just helpful, you know, to not read this as a story, but to know what's going on for him personally. His, his heart is wrapped up in this. And so he goes, despite the dangers, despite the warnings, in verse 17, he arrives in Jerusalem, which brings us to part two. Paul meets with the Jerusalem Christians with some awkwardness. Pick pick up with me verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the believers received us warmly. That's nice. It's warm. The rest of this is not very warm. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. James is now uh, the head of the church in Jerusalem. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. In detail. I mean, this must have been something. All these stories we've been looking at for months in the book of Acts, Paul reports in detail all the amazing things God is doing among the Gentiles. What Jesus said would happen is is happening. The gospel is going forth to all the ends of the earth. It's amazing. There's amazing stories. When they heard this, they praised God. 
Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So Paul tells them all this amazing stuff that God is doing. And it's real quick. Well, they, they praise God. And then without so much as a cordial transition, they get on to what's really on their mind, which is they're concerned about this image problem that's happening for the church in Jerusalem. There, there's an image problem. There's rumors going around that Paul is going around teaching people not to obey and honor the Jewish law, which really isn't true. Paul has never, he's said you don't need to become a Jew if you're not in order to know God, but he's never said for Jewish people to stop being Jewish, so there's no truth to this, but there's an image problem here. And James and the other leaders seem most concerned that Paul put a stop to, the, to this uh, image problem. They're very concerned with what the people around them are thinking and saying. So Paul has just told them all this amazing stuff. He's come back from the most incredible missionary journey of all time, and they don't seem all that excited about it. They don't really seem to own this mission to the Gentiles. They don't own it. I mean, by the time they mention the Gentiles again, it's in verse 25. Yeah, well, as for them, you know, we, we said what we had to say about them, that they keep all these various requirements. But there's no joy. There's no wonder. There's no awe at all these incredible things that God has done. They don't really own Paul's mission to the Gentiles. And it seems like that's because that, uh, the whole idea of, of Gentiles knowing God was just offensive to their culture. It's core to the gospel. Jesus said all people on earth would hear the gospel, that all people can come to God regardless of culture, ethnicity, race, whatever. Uh, it's core to the gospel, but this aspect of the gospel is offensive to their culture, and so they shy away from it. They distance themselves from the aspect of the gospel that's offensive to their culture. Paul, on the other hand, does not. He's willing to die for this message. That's his primary concern, not appeasing the people around him. But look what he said last week in our passage in uh, chapter 20, verse 24. Is this up here? It says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That's Paul's primary concern, testifying to God's grace. But the Jerusalem church's primary concern at this point seems to be appeasing the culture and the people around them, not causing too much of a fuss, too much of a stink. So they distance themselves from the aspects of the gospel which are offensive to their culture, and in doing so, they distance themselves from Paul, who loves Gentiles, who's reaching out to Gentiles. You know, Jewish people back then, they really didn't like Gentiles. They had a deep cultural prejudice against Gentiles. They were proud that they knew God and Gentiles didn't. And the idea of Paul was saying that Gentiles could know God the way that they do, it was abhorrent to them. They hated it. 
Uh, but Paul was just really standing on the truth of the gospel. And those who wanted to appease the culture around them distanced themselves from Paul. Uh, the rest of our passage today, it's just interesting. The church in Jerusalem is strangely silent the rest of the time. Where are they? What are they doing? We don't know. It could be that some of them are even part of the crowd that accuses Paul. We can't assume that, but at the very least, they are content to be silent bystanders in all this, happy to let Paul fend for himself while they stay safe. And we'll see things turn real bad for Paul real quick. On to section three, accusations, violence, and chaos, with a twist. We'll start with the section that Ronisha read for us and then go on into chapter 22 and 23. I wanted to just kind of get a, capture a feel for what's going on in the rest of our passage today. And so I thought about showing a movie clip, which I decided not to, but from the old 70s slapstick comedy, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, decided not to show it because it's just too silly. But just to capture what's the, the scene here, there's a scene in Monty Python where uh, it's in medieval England and this angry mob of people has found a woman they're accusing of being a witch. And they're just in a frenzy and the scene begins with them shouting, it's a witch, it's a witch, can we burn her? Let's burn the witch, burn the witch. And people are just shouting all kinds of crazy things. They're making up stuff. The st half the stories aren't even true. Half the people don't even know why they're there. But they just, they hear the word witch and burn her, burn the witch. And it's, I mean, it's chaotic. There's false accusations, there's violence. It's a, it's a crazy scene. Um, and just the very mention of the word witch just incites this violent, crazed reaction in people. They go berserk. So I didn't show it because this is actually kind of a serious passage and that movie is, is meant to be hilarious. But um, it kind of captures the feel of what's going on here. There's a frenzy, a crazed crowd accusing Paul of things, a violent crowd, and just chaos. We have false accusations. People assume that he brought Greeks into the temple. That never happened. They just saw him with Greeks in the city. They're probably just mad that he was friends with Greeks in the first place because they didn't like Greeks. So they accuse him of that. Then there's even more confusion. Someone says, aren't you the guy who led 4,000 terrorists in a revolt out in the wilderness? They're like, no, that's not true either. People don't even know why they're there. They don't know what's going on. They have no grip on even the reality of the story. There's chaos and there's violence. In verse 30, we see people running from all directions and they grab Paul and they just start beating him with the intent to kill. Luke makes that very clear in verse 31. They are trying to kill him. This is a violent, violent scene. There's a Roman commander who saves Paul's life, literally, in this passage. Otherwise, he would have been beaten to death. It's not that this Roman commander cares about Paul necessarily, but he's interested in preserving order and he sees a riot breaking out. So he gets Paul out of there just to kind of put an end to this riot. So Paul gets out of harm's way, thanks to the Roman commander. He's finally sa he's just been beaten within an inch of his life and he's finally safe and his response is amazing. He's not like, oh, well, get me away from them. I am done with them. He wants to go back and try to talk to them. This very crowd that was just making up stuff, whipping people into a frenzy and beating him to death, he wants to try again. He wants to tell them about Jesus. 
He wants to tell them about Jesus. He shows them such incredible grace. Remember, he came there because these are his people who he loves, who he's dying to know Jesus. Even their beating him up doesn't change that. He says, let me talk to him. Let me try again. Now, this is not because Paul's such an awesome guy. I just want to make that clear. It's not because Paul is such an awesome guy. I think it's actually because Paul was just like them. When we first met Paul earlier on in Acts, he was doing the exact same thing. He was a violent guy. He was making up false accusations against Christians. He was going from house to house, dragging people off, being violent, persecuting them, trying to put Christians to death. And he knows that Jesus showed him incredible grace and mercy. He's not any better than these people who are beating him up. He just knows forgiveness. He's been forgiven. He has found the grace of Jesus to transform his life. And he wants that for this crowd. So he asks to speak to them. It picks up in uh, chapter 22 at the end of what Ronisha read. Paul begins to speak to them. For the sake of time, I'll just kind of skim over it. But it begins with Paul just appealing to their common heritage, their common ancestry, everything he has in common with this crowd. He says, look, guys, I was just like you. I was a zealous Jew, zealous for God. I persecuted followers of this way to their death, arresting men and women, throwing them into prison. He's like, I'm I'm just like you. And then he goes on to tell how Jesus appeared to him, how Jesus showed him mercy, how Jesus showed him grace and turned his life around. He wants these people so desperately to know that. He wants them to know the grace that he's found, the grace that is in his life, the grace that has transformed his life. I wish I had a whole other sermon on this. We can learn so much here about what it means to be a witness to Jesus It's not that we're superior to other people in any way. We're just like them. But we just point to the fact that Jesus has forgiven us, that Jesus has shown us grace, that Jesus has shown us mercy, and he can show it to them too. So Paul tries. He appeals to them. He talks about the life-changing power of Jesus to turn around even a violent, unruly killer and a mob in hopes that they might experience grace and mercy too, because no one, he knows better than anyone, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace, no matter what they've done. He appeals to them, and they're listening until verse 21 of chapter 22. Paul mentions, The Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul really gets grace and he, and he talks about how Jesus called him to go and share that grace with Gentiles and, and the crowd just loses it. They'd been listening up until that point. They'd been tracking with him, but then he said that magic word again, Gentiles. He talked about loving Gentiles, loving these people that they couldn't stand. And man, prejudice just makes people do crazy things because this crowd goes berserk when they hear the word Gentiles, like the crowd that hears witch and says, burn her, burn her. These people hear Gentiles and they go crazy. The crowd, verse 22, listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. 
As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. And this crowd has, has gone crazy. And they're out to kill Paul again until the commander again gets him out of there to preserve the peace. The commander saves Paul. And again, it's not because the commander likes Paul. He's just interested in preserving peace. And we see the commander didn't like Paul by what happens next. He directed that he, Paul, be flogged and interrogated to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. And they stretched out him out to flog him. Now, if any of you have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson does a pretty dramatic and graphic job displaying what flogging looks like under Roman, uh, a Roman army. The Romans specialized in torturous flogging. They made whips, designed whips with the intent purpose of digging into a person's flesh and ripping it out. This isn't just a few, you know, lashes with a wet noodle. This is a violent weapon designed to tear Paul apart. He's about to be flogged in a gruesome and violent way. And just as the whip is raised, he's stretched out, the whip is up, he's ready to be flogged. We have a twist. He says this, Uh, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Just when Paul was about to lose it, at his darkest moment, we see the providence of God stepping in. The providence of God that's been at work since Paul's birth. Before Paul even knew God, God was working in the circumstances of Paul's birth to deliver him from this moment. He was born a Roman citizen, and that is what saves him here. God was laying the groundwork for this before Paul even was conscious of God. We see the providential hand of God at work here. And what this scene does, not only does it save Paul's life, saves his skin, but this scene here, sets in motion a chain of events through the next chapters of Acts that will lead Paul to Rome, where he'll get to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The vision that God had given them from the very beginning of this journey that he would eventually get to Rome. You know, by now, Paul's got to be wondering, am I ever going to get to Rome? Am I ever going to make it out of Jerusalem alive? But God uses even all this chaos all these terrible events, all these, you know, ungodly people to lead him to Rome. Everything human beings can throw at Paul and throw at his mission, all the violence, accusations, and chaos, God providentially works through it all to fulfill his purposes. Anything people can do can't thwart the plans that God has for Paul here. We see God's power and his providence, and then skipping ahead real quick, we see God personally speaking to Paul. 
in chapter 23. First, chapter 23 begins with another chaotic scene, another violent mob, another clash and crazy interaction. And Paul ends up in jail again. And in verse 11 of chapter 23, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God appears personally to Paul and speaks to him in an intimate, personal, caring way. Take courage. Paul must have needed some courage at this point. He's been left hanging out to dry. He's on his own. People have been beating him up, making all kinds of accusations. Powers that be are, cor- are joined forces against him. This is at Paul's lowest moment. Again, God would be wondering, am I ever going to make it out of this place alive? And God personally appears to him, personally reassures him, oh yeah, remember that vision that you'll preach in Rome? I'm still going to make good on that. Just as you testified to me here, you'll testify to me in Rome. God works powerfully, providentially, and personally in Paul's life. We don't see him doing that for anyone else here. We don't see this happening to James. We don't see this happening really to anyone else but to Paul. In the midst of all his suffering and everything that happens to him, God is working powerfully, providentially, and personally to fulfill his purposes for Paul's life. I want to go back to chapter 20. This is from last week, but it kind of sets the stage for everything that happened here. Where Paul said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. In our passage today, we see some of what it looks like for Paul to live this out. He suffers a great deal. His heart is broken and his body is beaten. We might look at this and we might feel bad for Paul. Or we might look at this and we might wonder, oh man, is, is God with Paul in the way that he was earlier when all the awesome stuff was happening? Uh, but we might have wanted to stop Paul from going through all this. But if we had, we would have only kept Paul from encountering Jesus and fulfilling his calling. We might wonder if, Paul, if God was really with Paul under such terrible circumstances, but we'd be wrong. We see that God is with Paul here more than he's ever been. And this stuff is not just for missionaries and pastors. There's thousands of everyday choices we can make as a church and as individuals to appease the culture around us or to make the gospel our primary concern. All kinds of choices to proclaim the full gospel, to really talk about the hard parts of it rather than the, the fluffy, nice, encouraging parts. We have choices to point out sin in our lives and in others' lives in a way that restores them or to just, you know, keep letting them be happy. We have all kinds of choices where we can speak up about our faith, where we can promote and live out integrity in our workplaces and our schools, where we can live more simply in a materialistic culture, where we can take time to be with God in prayer and in scripture in a busy culture that demands all of our time. We have choices where we can be peacemakers in the midst of conflict, where we can stand up for the poor, for reconciliation, for justice in ways that challenge uh, the structures and the power in our society. All of these choices uh, come with the flip side, the choice to appease. 
the choice that we saw in this passage. We could appease the culture around us. We could shy away from all these aspects of the gospel if they'll offend. And all of these choices can be invitations into suffering. And it can be tempting for us to try and stop one another from making choices like this because we know it will lead to suffering. A lot of times when people are called to do something by Jesus, their top uh, you know, opposition comes from other Christians. It makes sense that the culture around you would not like you living out the gospel in a bold way that's offensive to the culture. But a lot of times it's other Christians who kind of you know, want to protect you, just say, oh, you know, tone it down a little bit. You don't have to be that bold. Try to lay low. If that's going to make you suffer, I don't think God's calling you to that. God wouldn't want you to experience pain, would he? But we've got to be careful. Because if we talk to each other like that, we may actually deny people the opportunity to know Jesus better and to live out their calling. And if we have that spirit as a church where we try to lay low and appease and not cause too much of a fuss and shy away from the aspects of the gospel that could offend our culture, we might miss out on our calling as a church. We might be left like a relic that has very little spiritual impact and vitality in our community. There's plenty of churches like that. You can drive around and see them. But God is not calling us to be like that. Likely, he's calling us as a congregation and personally to suffer in some ways, small and profound, for the sake of the gospel. And those invitations may just be the invitations to know him better and live into the purposes that he's created us for. So may we step into it. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for how you worked so powerfully in Paul's life. Thank you that he didn't shy away from the gospel. Thank you that he was willing to suffer so that uh, Gentiles, which is most of us here, could know you, even though a lot of other people didn't want us to. He was willing to put the gospel first and lay down his life. And pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it means for us to do that here as a church in Worcester, in our lives, in all the places that you've placed us and called us. Teach us what it means to put the gospel first, to consider our lives nothing, to seek first not to appease, but to proclaim and to preach, to put you first. Lord, teach us what that means. Build that into us. When we read that scripture, when we read Paul's words, may they not just be nice words, but may they be the cry of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.